life is full of disappointments and wounds and hurts. And we know there is an enemy who steals and kills and destroys. But Jesus has given us life and hope and peace. And we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, and darkness. We've been called to be overcomers, and we can, and we will. Have you noticed the credits at the end of the songs? Have you ever noticed that you, when the song gets finished, we're supposed to roll those as a part of law, I think. But did you notice every so often that the ones who write the songs are our own guys and the song we just sang was written by Jared? Did you all know that? Did you notice that? Isn't that cool? Every so often, some of the songs that we're, we're singing together, we're learning together and singing are written by our guys, and I am so proud of that. Another thing, I noticed a few weeks ago that the drummer is now in a cage. Have you seen that? Have you noticed that? I don't know what he did to have to get in the cage, but I'm trying to behave myself because it's hard to preach in the cage, I would imagine. I want to preach right here. Did you guys hear about the guy a few months ago? It was in June, the guy in Corpus Christi, he found a rattlesnake in his backyard, and he got a shovel, and he cut its head off. He cut it. He killed it, cut its head off, decapitated it. The snake, the rattlesnake, is now dead, and he is kind of curious about the head, and so he reaches down to pick up the head, and it bites him. No, I'm telling you the truth. It bites him, and in fact... He barely makes it to the hospital in time. Barely. He almost died. From the bite of a dead snake. So how in the world did that happen? Well, in 1999, the New England Journal of, of Health came out with a study that had been done worldwide, and they discovered that 15% of the people in the world, 15 percent of the people in the world that die from snake bite die from snake bite of snakes who are already dead. So how is this possible? Well, it's called reflex, and it's like the chicken when you cut the chicken's head off. Have you ever seen that? I'm going to tell you, that is one of the, for a little kid, that is one of the scariest scenes you can ever have. It beats Halloween all over the place. To see a chicken with no head run, it goes crazy. It is unbelievable what happens to a chicken when you cut its head off. It's reflex. Well, the same thing for a snake. And did you know that for one hour, for up to one hour, a dead snake that is venomous can still kill you for up to one hour. Hope I saved somebody's life here. The Bible says that Satan is a serpent, that Satan is a snake. 
And that at the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus cut his head off. Now, not literally, that's figuratively. He triumphed over Satan at the cross. At the cross of Jesus Christ, he killed death and sin and hell. He triumphed over them. And Satan is a defeated foe. But even though he is a defeated foe, he is a dangerous foe. And in fact, maybe more dangerous than ever because he knows there is no turning back now. There is no way that anything will turn out differently for him. And he is wanting to take as many people with him to his own destruction. And he wants to take you. We're in a series entitled The Invisible War, a series on spiritual warfare because we're wanting to learn how it is that we live in this warfare that you and I find ourselves in everyday life. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, meaning not physical. You cannot look. You, it's not, it's not psych, psychology. It's not physical. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down of strongholds. The Bible gives to us the weapons that God has provided for us to win this war. And in fact, God says, there is not a battle you have to lose. You never have to lose again any battle that you and I ever face with Satan. He has given us the weapons to be victorious every single time. And what we're doing in this series is walking through now those weapons. In the series, the first part of the series has been all about understanding our enemy. We've looked at where Satan came from, how he fell, what are the strategies and the goals that Satan has in combat against us. We pause for one week to look at the good guys, the angels, to look at what the Bible teaches about angels for one week. And you remember, I made a statement to you in that message that, look, don't believe everything you're reading on the internet, everything you're, you're reading of other people, what people are saying. Don't believe all that stuff because it has been hijacked by new age. And I say to you that there, I'm sure there's more than one good resource, but there is a good resource you can trust. It was written by Billy Graham on the subject of angels. And we ordered some of the books, got it as cheap as we can so we could pass that along to you. And there are books, I told you that we would have some books, and we now have them in the bookstore. You need to get the book of Billy Graham on angels because when you have questions, some issues, maybe family members, you've got it right there in your library, and I encourage you to take advantage of it. Last week, we talked about demons and demonology and what the Bible teaches about that. All of that, understanding our enemy. But now, in the next three weeks, this is the first of the three, I want us to take a look at the weapons that God has given to us to be successful in this war with Satan. Two of the messages are going to be about defensive weapons, this one and next Sunday, and then the last Sunday about the offensive weapons that God has given to us. This morning I want us to take a look at three of the defensive weapons. The Apostle Paul was a prisoner in Rome when he wrote the book of Ephesians. I love the book of Ephesians. Of all the books uh, that are the books of Paul, the one I love the most is Ephesians. The greatest one maybe is the book of Romans, but the book of Ephesians has got to be right behind it. And it is one of the great, great books of the Bible. When you get to the eighth chapter of the book of Ephesians, 
sixth chapter at the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing about spiritual warfare. And Paul is, as he's writing, he is looking at this Roman soldier that is in front of him 24-7. He is a prisoner in Rome, but he's not in prison. He is actually in house arrest. And he has a Roman soldier in front of him 24-7. They go through shifts, maybe, maybe four hours or six hours, and they're, they're uh, rotating through shifts. But all the time, he's got a soldier in front of him. You can imagine he's probably witnessing to every one of these guys. Who knows how many soldiers came to know, know Christ as their Savior by guarding Paul. Now, Paul is looking at the armor, the suit of this soldier. Here is what that soldier would have looked like. There you go. There it is. And he was looking at that, and he comes to the sixth chapter of Ephesians where he talks about spiritual warfare, and he takes every one of the weapons that God has given to us to be successful and assigns them to one of these armament. And so we're going to be looking as we go through this passage of Scripture with that kind of thing in mind where Paul is saying, put on the full armor of God, and that is what Paul has in mind. So I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Would you stand where you, where you are? Would you stand? And I'm going to ask us to read this passage of Scripture together, beginning with the word, therefore. Are you ready? Let's just read it out, out loud together. Here we go. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Thank you. You may be seated. Did you notice that he uses the word when and not if? When the evil day comes. Not if, but when. If you're breathing, if you're alive, you got an evil day coming. In fact, you got evil days coming. They're going to come and go and come and go. And if you're not going through hard times, get ready. Hard times are coming. And this is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, don't be surprised when hard times come. Well, how could a loving God allow me to go through hard times? Because He's a loving God. And He knows that hard times, when you and I go through them, are times in which it drives us closer to the heart of God. It is a time in which we actually get stronger, a time in which we actually get wiser. And even when we go through the hard times, God uses them in our favor. He uses them as a positive thing in our life. So he says, don't be surprised when it comes. Hard times are coming. Hard times are coming. They're coming. So when these hard times are coming, he says, put on the full armor of God, so that as you go through these days, you will stand. And having done everything, you're still standing standing strong. He is talking about the weapons of our warfare that God has given us. And so this morning, let's take a look at the first three of the defensive weapons. And the first one of those is a belt. Surround your life with truth. Surround your life with truth. Look at what he says, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand firm then with the belt 
of truth buckled around your waist. One of the weapons of spiritual warfare is truth. Now, if you go back in your mind and think about the second message in which we were going, as we were going through, as we were talking about Satan's strategies, what he uses as a strategy to defeat us, one of the strategies is deceit. One of the strategies is deception, and Jesus made this statement. He said, when Satan lies, he is speaking his native language because he is a liar. He will never tell you the truth. He is always lying to you. So what are some of the lies he says? He whispers in your ear and he says, God doesn't love you anymore. He did love you, of course, but he, he doesn't love you anymore. He doesn't care about you anymore. See, you have so messed up so much. Oh, God, I am so sorry I did that. And God, would you forgive me? Okay, and then you're right back and you did it again. And, and you did it again. You did it again. And now God does not love you anymore. You've so messed up. You have so messed up, God has just said, oh, forget you. He has abandoned you. He doesn't care about you anymore. You have no hope. You have no future, and everything is lost. But it's all a lie. And you and I are hearing things from him that is nothing but sheer lies. Because he's a liar, and the only language he knows is lie. And what God is saying to us is that it's time that you and I begin to listen to the truth and stop listening to the lies. How do you combat the lies that Satan tells you? You counter it with truth. So listen to what Paul says. Paul says, put on the belt of truth. Why does Paul equate the word belt with truth? Take a look at this close-up of a Roman soldier's belt. Look at all that stuff. And in fact, if you could go all the way around the other side of him, you'd see more stuff. This belt was critical. In fact, the belt not only held these things together, it held together the whole armament. In the same way, truth will hold you together when you are under attack. One of our church's values is truth matters. And when we say truth matters, what we're really saying is that because the Bible is God's inspired word, it is the source of truth for all people. That's the idea. We are equating the word truth with the word of God just like the Bible equates truth with God's Word. So what is this truth of the, God, of the Word of God? Truth is the grid through which all information and all experiences of our life is to be filtered. It is to be filtered through truth. Do you know what most people filter their life through? Their emotions, their experiences and their emotions. But experiences lie to us and emotions greatly lie to us. But the, the, the grid of emotions is, how does it feel right? I mean, if it feels right, how could it be wrong? If it feels so right, how could it be wrong? How do you feel? It's all about feelings. But the problem is, is that feelings lie to us. 
Pretty much most of the wrong choices that we've made in our life, the wrong decisions we've made in our life, we've made from emotion, not truth. And so God's Word says this to us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. The whole Bible was given to us by inspiration from God and is useful to teach us what is true. God gave us His Word to teach us what is true and to make us realize then what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out. It helps us to do what is right. It is truth that changes our life. The Bible changes our thoughts so it can change our actions. And this is why in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might know what the right thing is. How is our mind renewed? Our mind is renewed through God's Word. When we are reading God's Word, He changes what we understand. When we line ourselves up with God's Word, it changes what we understand. So now we are not making decisions under the grid or with the grid of emotion or experience. We are making our decisions by through the grid of truth the belt of truth that holds it all together. So what are some of the truths that God tells us about us? Here are some of them, not nearly all, but here are some. Number one, God loves you, period. The Bible describes it as unconditional love. Unconditional love means love unconditionally. Most of us understand love only through a series of conditions. Most of us understand being loved by someone else only by a series of conditions. I'll love you if, 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 if. And so we assume, I guess, sometimes that God is the same way, but God's love is unconditional. God loves us, period. Second of all, God disciplines our wrongs. God disciplines our wrongs, but He doesn't throw us away. He disciplines our wrongs, but He doesn't throw us away. Third, God forgives us and wipes the slate clean when we genuinely turn away from our sins. You really can't con God. But when there is genuine repentance, He wipes the slate clean. God knows exactly the difficulties that you're going through and will turn it for good in your life, so don't panic. Would you listen to that? God knows exactly the difficulties you're going through. He knows exactly the problems you're experiencing. And He has made you a promise, I will turn this for good in your life, so you don't have to panic. Greater is the Holy Spirit who is in you than your enemy who is in the world. In Christ, you are a child of God. The ultimate victory has already been won. And you will come out on top. Is there an amen anywhere with this? <clears throat> well... I don't know how it'll turn out. I hope I'm going to be all right. 
Oh, no, you are a child of God. And the victory has already been won. And God will see you through. You're already assured of victory. You're already a winner. Because God has already determined it. You will come out on top. You have been accepted by God. Now, stop for a moment. Every single religion in the world except Christianity, every other religion in the world has the whole concept of here's just the only way you can be accepted by God. Here is a list of do's and don'ts. Here is a list of rules and regulations. You go through this list and you keep up this list, and as long as you keep the list up, you'll be fine. God will accept you once you get through the list, maybe. But Christianity doesn't say that at all. In fact, Christianity says, no, you are already accepted. He has already accepted you. And you know what? There's several verses in the New Testament that says this. God has already accepted you, not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already done for you on the cross. You see, if you could make your own salvation, if you could earn your own way, if you could earn God's acceptance of you by what you do right and wrong, if you could earn it, you don't need a Savior. But you cannot earn it. No one can earn it. And that's why we needed a Savior, and that's why He came. And He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, to pay our sin debt. And we now have been accepted by God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. These are just some of the truths of God's Word. And I'm going to tell you, you start putting these truths into your heart, it will change how you see life. And when He lies to you, the evil one lies to you, you will immediately be able to say, oh, that's not true. No, that thought is not true. No, that is a lie. And what God is saying to us, isn't it about time that you stop letting your emotions tell you what is right and wrong and start listening to God's Word. Stop listening to Satan and start listening to what God's Word teaches you about you. The belt of truth. Seat belts in cars can be a nuisance. I don't even understand why there's seat belts in airplanes. If that plane's going down, that seat belt isn't going to do a lot. I don't even get it. But seat belts in cars, I get that. I get that. Uh, but not everybody really got into seat belts. You know, once you start doing the seat belt, it becomes so second nature. You don't even, you, you did it and didn't even remember you did it. You, it's just, it's just, just something you do when you get in the car. But not everybody responded that way. Not a particular guy named Ivan Segedon, who lived in New Zealand. New Zealand passed a law that said you got to wear seat belts in the cars. And he said, I don't care what the law is, I'm never doing it. He got 32 tickets. 32 tickets for seat belt, not having seat belt. How he kept his license, I don't even understand that. 32 tickets. But one day he got the idea, you know what, I, I can beat this. He created a strap that he would drape over his shoulder that made it look like he had a seatbelt on. Well, by the time you drape it over, you could have just put your seatbelt on. What is the deal? So 
So he stopped getting tickets, but he got into an accident, and he died. And the coroner, looking over the whole thing, not knowing who this guy is, said if the guy had a seatbelt on, he would still be alive. Because here is the truth, the fake, the lie, will always destroy you. And the truth will always hold you together. And God says the first weapon of your warfare is to understand the truth of what I say about you. Understand the truth. There is a second weapon, and that is the breastplate. Wear righteousness like a bulletproof vest. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. A Roman soldier would wear a breastplate. This is a picture of a breastplate right here. There it is. You see it? And the whole idea of it is to protect the vital organs. That's the idea. One of the methods that Satan uses is lies, and we have to have the belt of truth. And another one of his strategies is perversion. And we must have the breastplate of righteousness. We talked about in the second week of the series the perversion. One of the strategies is perversion. And the idea of perversion is simply this. Perversion is taking a good thing beyond the boundaries that God intended. God has given us so many good things, so many wonderful things, so many great things. God has given us so many great things. He's given us food and He's given us relationships and he's he's given us sexuality and he he's and, and intimate relationships and he's given us he's given us sports. I know sports had to be a part of it. I know I know baseball from it, look in Genesis 1 1 in the big inning God God see at the very start at the very he wouldn't he didn't even want anything to be known until we knew baseball was coming. It's all of these good things God has given to us. These great things. But a perversion is taking every, any good thing beyond the boundaries that God intends. And when it goes beyond the boundaries God intends, it becomes perversion. Satan is not saying to you, stop doing all these great things that you love. He's not saying that. He is saying, do them beyond the boundaries that God put. Because if you go across the boundary, it's better. But what the perversion is actually doing is it's actually changing who you are on the inside. It's actually changing who you are on the inside. So Paul says, here is the weapon put on the breastplate of righteousness. So when the Bible talks about righteousness, it's really talking about this word righteousness is used two different ways. So let's just... Let's talk real quickly about both ways. The first way is that righteousness is a right standing with God. That's the first understanding about the idea of righteousness. There's a right standing with God. Because of our sin, we don't know Christ as Savior. We're lost. We are away from God. We're separated from God. So how do we get a right standing with God? All the religions of the world say do this list of rules and regulations, and when you get this list done, you'll have right standing, hopefully, maybe, I don't know. 
with God. But Christianity says exactly the opposite. The New Testament, all through the New Testament says, no, you don't, you don't understand. Right standing with God happens differently than that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin that we could be made right with God through Christ. Here's what I want to say to you. Our right standing with Christ, with God, means we now have a relationship with God and that God receives us. It's the whole idea of accepting us. And the right standing that we have with God has nothing to do with what with us. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. And here is the description in, in 2 Corinthians 5. He is saying that there is an exchange that happens. Here is Jesus Christ, totally holy, totally with righteous, never, never sin. Here we are, sinners and lost and in need of a Savior. And so what happened at the cross is that God took all of our sin. He looked down through time, saw you and me. He took all of our sin of all of our life, and He laid our sin on Jesus Christ. And He took the righteousness that Jesus had, and He gave that righteousness to us. It is an exchange. It is a gift. It is a gift that God gives to us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We never will. You can work and work and work and do this and that and right and wrong, and it'll never happen for you because we need a Savior to do it, and that's what He was doing on the cross. He exchanged His righteousness for our sin so that He could purchase our salvation. Right standing with God happens not because of me. Because if it did, it would be hopeless. Right standing with God happens because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the atonement of Jesus Christ, because of what His blood, shed blood did for us. We just took of the Lord's Supper. We just really enacted our atonement, the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our right standing with God is based on Him. So guess what? Because my right standing is based on Him and not me, and when He sees me, He doesn't see me. He sees Christ in me. I have nothing to do with my right standing with God. I just enjoy it and thank God for it. There is another understanding of righteousness and that is right living, right standing with God. That's one part, but right, right living. Righteousness also means right living. So here's what I want to say to you. Do not think that God has called you to be saved, and now you can just sin like the devil and do whatever you please and just say, oh, God, forgive me, and he forgives you, and God is just some grandfather up in heaven somewhere that just forgives everything all the time and doesn't hold you accountable. Because the truth is, God has also promised to discipline us when we violate his word but He will never throw us away. He will discipline us. And yes, God will forgive us, and we go to God and ask God for forgiveness, and He does forgive us. But oftentimes, in those sins, there are scars that are left. There are wounds that we go through. I think of King David in the Old Testament, and I think of a guy who had a heart for God. He loved God with all of his heart, but the truth is, in a moment of weakness, he committed adultery... And then he murdered 
the woman's husband that he committed adultery with. And he was the king, and who could say anything? And he had gotten away with it, but he didn't get away with it because God then put a giant spotlight on it so everybody could see it. And he didn't get away. In brokenness, David repented and God forgave him of sin. But God also said to him, the sword will never leave your family. The brokenness that you created, you'll live with the rest of your life in some way or, or form. So it is not live like the devil and, oh, God will forgive me. God has called you and I to right living. Living right because He loves us, not living right to cause Him to love us. And it's two totally different things. Tony Evans tells this story. It's, wow, amazing. A young boy went fishing, lived out in the country to go fishing at a particular fishing hole. And, and uh, his parents were so used to letting him, he, he took off. He went fishing. And he had fine worms to use. And he found a nest of worms of little red worms. He found a nest, so he got a shovel, he, he scooped them all up, put them in his pail, and off he went. And so when he got to the fishing hole, he put one of the little red worms on his hook, but when he grabbed hold of that little red worm, the worm bit him. It was so painful. But he then put the worm on the hook, and he put it in the water, and he caught a big fish. And so, he put another red worm on it, and that red worm bit him. It didn't hurt as much as the first bite, but it hurt. And he put it on the hook, and he tossed it in, and he caught a fish. And he, one after another, after another, after another of these red worms, and every single one of them bit him. And the pain of the bite diminished each time. He finally had used all the red worms, and he had caught a mess of fish, and he was now taking it home. But he wasn't feeling good. And in fact, on his way home, on the road, he got so tired, he sat down by the side of the road. He was feeling so bad. And a motorist came by and stopped, saw the little boy, and you know, is there anything I could do to help you? Well, could you drive me to my house? He said, sure, I'll be glad to do it. Got in the car, and he's driving to his house. And he asked the little boy, what's going on? He said, I don't know. I just don't feel good. And he explained what he had done, and then he showed him his hand, and the man immediately knew what had happened. And he turned that car around, and he raced as fast as he could to the hospital, but he could not get there in time. And the little boy died in that car. The little red worms were actually little baby rattlesnakes, and he did not know it. And what happened was is that the first bite was venomous, but it wasn't enough to kill. It was just a little tiny rattlesnake, not enough to kill him, but it hurt, and then it didn't hurt as much. And didn't, but what he was doing was building up the venom and building up and building up and building up. And it finally took his life. 
And this is what Satan is doing with you and me. And he comes to us and, and, and we do, we, he lies to us and, and we violate the boundary that God intended and we know it and there is a deep sense of guilt that we feel, a deep sense of pain that we feel when we have violated that and we know it. But the second time we do it, there's not as much pain. Next time, not as much, not as much, as not as much. Now, there's like, there's none at all. But what we're not realizing is that the venom is building up. And what it is doing is destroying us from the inside. And that's what he's trying to do. And Paul is saying to us, what I'm asking you to do is put on this breastplate. You, this is not, this is not the righteousness that we get by God putting Christ's righteousness on us. God puts righteousness right standing with God on us like a mother would put clothing on their child. But we put on righteousness in our life with right living. We have to make that. And verse 14, God tells us, you put on, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is saying you are responsible to make right decisions. You're responsible. I will always provide a door of escape with every temptation, but you've got to say yes, you're responsible. The third weapon is this, shoes. Live your life with an unshakable peace. Verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The Roman army had a technology that no other army had. It's just an amazing thing. It seems so simple today, but it's an amazing technology. Look at these shoes. They figured out how to make a sole that they could actually put studs inside like cleats. They were the originator of cleats. Did you know that? The Romans. The Romans were the originator of cleats. And they put, they learned how to make a sole that they could put these metal studs in. And why? Because in hand-to-hand combat, the guy who falls first usually dies. And so having your good footing, solid footing, was critical in a hand-to-hand combat. And so they've got these studs, they've got these cleats that give you greater footing, and they had the advantage over anybody else in hand-to-hand combat because of the cleats. And Paul, seeing that, says, God has given you cleats in your feet. He's given you a something that you can stand on and never have to worry about falling. And what is it? He has given you peace with Him. Listen to what he says. When we receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, we received peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is this. You and I, the moment we receive Christ as Savior, you now have peace with God. The war with God is over. You have peace with God. Peace that did not come because of you. Peace that came because of Jesus Christ. Peace is not the absence of external trials and tribulations, but it is an internal confidence when we are facing hard times. And that peace 
is already in you. Because when the Holy Spirit came to live inside you, that peace came to live inside you too. And some of you are saying to me, you're, saying, you're arguing with me right now in your mind, saying, well, maybe so, but I feel no peace. I have no inner peace at all in my heart, in my life. I am so struggling, needing peace inside. There's no need to pray for peace inside because you already have it. What the struggle is, is that you've got to pull away from all the noise of your life. And you've got to come back to God because all that is saying is, is that I've gotten so far away from God. I have gotten so distanced from God. I cannot sense the peace anymore. But what God is saying to you and me is come close. Come in that relationship with me and you will begin to feel the peace surge back in your life because the peace is already there. You have all the peace that you will ever need already resident in you in the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. All you've got to do is start coming back to God. And when you come away from the noise and you start turning your heart back to God, the peace will begin to grow inside you again. I've given you two passages of Scripture that I hope that you'll spend some time with, meditate on. These, pa- these two verses have changed my life over the years. These two verses God has so used in my life. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, and Proverbs chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, about this whole idea of inner peace. This can be yours again. It already dwells in you if you know Jesus as your Savior. So what is he saying? Take these three defensive weapons. Take the truth I've already given to you and put it around your belt and stop believing the lies. Make the decision that you will start living right when the temptations come. Trust me and do what I tell you to do. Get away from all the noise of your life and get back close to me and you will begin to sense that peace. And that peace will make your feet so sturdy you cannot be moved. What about you today? Did you know you can only have these if you know Jesus as your Savior? And there's some of you in this room. And all this time, you have come maybe to church many times, or maybe this is your first time, and you do not know the God who made you, not really. You might have gone through the act of things, religious acts, but you already know none of them meant anything. And I'm asking you this morning, would you give your heart to Christ? For real, would you give your heart to Christ? Because the moment you do, He'll come to live inside of you. You cannot believe the change that will begin to happen in your life. This morning, in just a few moments, right through these center doors, in the short, across the short for you to a room called Next Step Center, you'll see it. We have ministers there waiting, and we'll spend time with you one-on-one. Come and give your heart to Christ. Come and join this church. I just need someone to pray for me. I already know Christ. I just need someone to pray for me. Go to the Next Step Center. We'll help you. We'll pray with you. Give us the opportunity this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not physical, but they are mighty in you for the pulling down of strongholds. And God, I pray you'd move in hearts today to yield hearts back to you.
Father, move in the hearts of many to come and give their heart and life to you. Come and join this church, whatever you're leading them, their lives to do. May their answer today be yes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.